This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. It is February 11th. My name is John Dunn. And on this podcast, we've made a concerted effort to talk about underserved communities. It is important, of course, to achieve the No-Kill 2025 goal, but every day, thousands of animals are dying in communities that aren't being helped and that, quite frankly, we've ignored for far too long. If this is your first episode of the Best Friends Podcast, thank you for listening, but I'd love for you to go back and listen to the previous episodes where we've talked about this in a few different ways with different leaders across the country, because that is what led us to today. Because I think that far too often when we talk about serving underserved communities, we frame the conversation around urban communities. And that's not wrong. That is a real need. But according to the Census Bureau, 3% of the land in America can be defined as urban. And that 3% houses 80% of the population. So 20% of Americans are spread out over the other 97% of land. And of course, much of that land is unpopulated, but that spread brings its own challenges to life-saving. So given today's topic of saving lives in rural America, I thought, oh, I could weave in a song, some music that helps set the mood for a discussion about rural America. So what song would represent rural America? When I first thought about it, my Midwestern mind jumped to, like, Heartland Rock, John Cougar Mellencamp. Let me cut that off so we don't get in trouble for playing that without permission. But that genre of music doesn't capture even a shred of rural American culture. And as I started to think about other kinds of music that we can associate with rural America, country music, bluegrass, maybe blues, Tejano or Tex-Mex music, gospel, Native American powwow, the list goes on. And it was that mental exercise that helped me recognize that by no means is rural America a monolith. It couldn't be further from the truth. It's multiracial. The communities and people span the socioeconomic spectrum. And despite what my bias immediately said to me about rural American music, blue-collar heartland rock, rural America is way more than that. But as we well know, the love of pets transcends all, regardless of zip code, how much is in a wallet, or what's on the radio. But there is another commonality. Healthy or treatable pets are being killed in large numbers across rural America. And while not universally true, resources to help people and pets are sparse. And in some cases, non-existent. Getting the country to no-kill by 2025, where every healthy or treatable pet is saved in every community, just think about that for a minute. Let's start with where you live. Even if your community is currently saving 90% of those animals, let's make it easy and do counties. What about the county over? What about the county next to that? And the next, and the next, and so on. It's a lot of territory. So I am glad that you're here with us for this episode, where the goal is to start this conversation. Let's keep an open mind and an open heart as we think about the ways that we can include this large subset of Americans that are often excluded in the no-kill conversation. We have three people part of today's episode. Rhonda Norris, the director of the Peaceful Animal Adoption Shelter, or PAWS, in Venita, Oklahoma. Dana McCrory, the president and CEO of the Oklahoma Humane Society. But up first is Brent Tolner. 
Senior Director of National Programs for Best Friends, I asked Brent to try to lay out with the data we have available, the numbers. What is happening across that 97% of land which makes up rural America? So working on this episode, Brent, I talked to a few different people with different communities, organizations, shelters. Uh, Tony Adair, for example, mm-hmm. he's the director of the shelter in Cleveland County, North Carolina. Uh, Bergen County, Spay and Neuter, it's an organization. They go out into rural Colorado and provide those services. And then Oklahoma Humane Society. So I'm going to focus on them today and one of their new partners in rural Oklahoma. And I thought it would be good to start with them for this episode because I think it really is something interesting as far as models go in a state that across much of it is quite rural and admittedly that by no means is Oklahoma all of rural America, but I I do think it's a good place to start. Well, and I think the thing that is exciting about what Oklahoma Humane's doing, and I don't know the other ones, but I think as we look to 2025, the places with resources, so a place like Oklahoma City that has tons of resources, like once they can solve their problem in Oklahoma City, they can be a resource to others. And it's like if you're used to dealing with 25,000 animals in Oklahoma City and now all of a sudden you've got that solved, but you saw the resources to support 25,000 animals, like you can solve rural Oklahoma quickly with those types of resources. When you think about Dallas and how many resources were going to help Dallas Animal Services for years. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, Ed's got that pretty well under control. That they, He needs a little bit of help, but now they can start tailoring the resources to all the little shelters around Dallas. Like, I just think expanding those donuts is going to be what gets us there because you're not going to start off with resources in rural Oklahoma. The resources are going to have to come from the well-resourced urban areas, I think. Right. And in this case, like I say, those interviews with them coming up, what is interesting, I think, is, you know, for them, it's not a case of we've been successful in Oklahoma City. We're going to go find a community and we're just going to go in and do what we did in, in Oklahoma City. They're looking at what is already there and focusing on building relationships and understanding, I think in a very smart way, how they can grow the life-saving capacity instead of just, you know, coming in and steamrolling others with a plan that doesn't actually address the needs of the community. You basically have the infrastructure there, but now you have an infusion of resources into some existing infrastructure, which just expands its viability. So you're not building it from scratch, which is what she's going to do in POTO as well. So by no means is it uh, the only good approach, and we just don't have time to talk uh, through all of that today. I really wanted you here to talk about numbers. Uh, And I know there's been some work done on the data front to try to better understand this. So what do we know? What is the rural America story for animals by the numbers? Yeah, so I mean, I think we've always inherently known, right, that when people are in jeopardy, pets are in jeopardy, uh, and that there's that interchange there. And then when pets are in jeopardy, then shelters find themselves in, in challenging situations. And so we've been doing a lot of work around social vulnerability and using the CDC Social Vulnerability Index to see if we can understand a little bit more of the connection between being socially vulnerable and shelter intakes and outcomes. So really the 
social vulnerability index is something the CDC has put together, and it really looks at a lot of different factors that can help determine whether a community and the people in the community are at risk. And it looks at things like socioeconomic status of the people in the community, whether household composition, and whether there are high levels of people with disabilities in them. It looks at things like race, ethnicity, and language. It looks at things like housing, uh, whether people own or rent houses and housing prices. It also looks at uh, the accessibility of transportation and really groups people into high, medium, and and low levels of vulnerability, and these communities into high, medium, and low levels of vulnerability. What we found is about 29% of the population uh, of the United States lives in an area that would be considered highly vulnerable, and yet 53% of the shelter deaths that are happening out there are are happening in those communities. What it really highlights is what we've kind of known all along, is that there's a strong connection between people who are at risk, pets who are at risk, and that subsequently, when shelters are going to be challenged because they're going to have a, a higher propensity of animals coming into those shelters. And I think that often, you know, we think about being socially vulnerable and we put it in our brains of like, this is in very urban areas and it really involves uh, high populations of minorities in urban areas. But the reality of the matter is that it impacts a lot of rural America too. And that 61% of all of these high socially vulnerable counties are actually rural counties. Almost 30% of them are highly rural counties. It's impossible for us to have this discussion about where we are uh, and highlight the myriad types of rural communities across the country. But one thing I think of, and I, I think it certainly speaks to the report, is that in so many places, it's not an issue of getting services that exist to a part of town that doesn't have access. So what I mean by that, you know, in, in larger urban communities, there, there are span neuter services oftentimes. It's just getting them to the parts of the community that need it. Mm-hmm. In these cases, it's like they just, these services don't exist at all. Like there's one vet for the entire community. And that one vet, even if they want to offer a low or no cost spay neuter, they just don't have the capacity to do it. Yeah. So of the thousand counties in the country that are labeled as heavily rural, 26% of them don't have any veterinary resources at all. Uh, even some of the ones that do, it's like, yes, they have a veterinarian, but it's the same veterinarian you would call for your dog or your cat as you would call for your horse or your cow or your pig. Like it, it's one veterinarian that's serving all animal species. Yeah, so a lot of them don't have, you know, a quarter of them, well, more than a quarter, don't have any veterinary access at all. A significant number of them, um, 35% of them don't even have a shelter. So like there's not a shelter, there's not a veterinarian, there's there's just no resources, to your point. So in 2019... 625,000 animals, healthy or treatable animals, were killed. And I know this one might be tricky, but is there any idea of of what portion of that 625,000 can be attributed to rural communities? Yeah, so the total killed, obviously a lot of those 625,000, most of those are happening in heavily urban areas. There are just more animals in heavily urban areas because there are more people in those heavily urban areas. What we've seen in the rural, it makes up a smaller percentage of the total animals that are being killed in shelters, but those shelters can tend to have a slightly higher uh, intake per capita. They're definitely uh, having a higher number of animals killed per capita uh, because those shelters can also tend to be underfunded. And so where in a heavily urban area, uh, roughly 10% of the 
animals that are intaked are killed uh, is closer to 15% in some of the rural areas. And so we're seeing that there's a, just a little bit of a divide. It's not the high volume of animals that we see in the urban areas, but it's also like it's a higher percentage of the animals that are entering the shelter system are, are ending up unnecessarily killed. Lack of services, not unique to rural areas, right? I mean, oftentimes I feel uh, that in urban areas, you know, things exist. And like I said before, you know, there may be services. It's more a question of getting people hooked up. But with rural America, I, I, I think about indigenous communities, places like the Navajo Nation. It's geographically a huge area, and there's so little there. So the need is great. And what a challenge to go in, and not just from a logistics perspective, trying to help people across this massive area. Like, that's crazy enough. But spay neuter, basic supplies, what they need to be a successful pet parent doesn't even scratch the surface of what a family truly needs there. Yeah, and it's, I think this is where that listening part really comes in. Like, yeah, you're completely right. In these rural areas, like, whether it's a Native American reservation or just a, a rural spot in rural Missouri or whatever, these are the communities that lost their high school. They lost their hospital. They don't have anything. And so I think that's one of those things where maybe you can go in to help their pets, but as you understand what other needs are there, this is where I think there's a big opportunity for us to become more integrated with animal welfare services and human welfare services and figuring out how can we better partner to solve this because again like coming back to what i said earlier it's like when there are people in need there are pets in need and you can't separate those two things out like they're the identical problem and the more that we can have these services better integrated i think it will hopefully lift us all up uh, and and be able to provide more resources to the people who need them and their pets uh, Brent, I want to make sure we frame up this issue as best we can in this, uh, you know, opening episode of this topic. So what are some of the other things that maybe you didn't talk about that would be good for us to know? So a couple of things. So one of them that I definitely didn't hit on is when we were talking about the places without medical services uh, and how the correlation. So of the counties that have zero veterinary locations in that county, 87% of them also don't have any medical services available to them. So like there's almost a 100% overlap between those veterinary services and the human health services part of it. For the shelters that are in heavily rural areas, their killed rate is about 14% of animals that come in where in urban areas is closer to 11. So again, a higher per capita killed rate uh, in those places. Put this in perspective, it's a small number of people Obviously, these are rural areas, and so they're not densely populated. So it represents roughly about 2 million people. So it's a lot of people, but you know, when you think about a city like Denver itself has 2 million people in it, it puts it in perspective that this is a small number of people and a lot of, or a large number of people in a lot of small pockets across the country. And so it, it does require a much different solve than being able to plop down a low-cost veterinary clinic in the middle of a urban environment and being able to tackle a lot of people. Like, it's going to be a lot of one-day-a-week a type of stuff for a long time to be able to provide the services that are needed there. You know, that reminds me of when you and I talked about the 2019 data set uh, when it came out. I think it was episode 19 or 12. I don't, I don't remember. I don't know if you remember this, but we talked about the smallest no-kill community in America. Uh, do you remember what the population is? Two. Oh, it's two. I thought it was eight. No, I think you said it was two. It's like, I, I felt like it was a husband and wife that, like, 
flip-flopped between the mayor uh, thing there. Either way, super small, obviously. And I I do think it illustrates uh, those pockets of small communities you're talking about, 200 people, 573. And, you know, especially out west, right, Navajo Nation or, or anywhere, you know, the drive between two communities of 100 people is like 50 miles. So many unique challenges. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one that, you know, again, the geography adds an extra layer of challenge to it because it is does get remote and they do they are fairly isolated from where services are and so that connectivity is going to be really a critical part of us getting to 2025. Brent I think that helps me understand more about the challenges you know what we're looking at and there are so many great examples of organizations that are doing well in this uh, regard and I know we're going to be talking about uh, a lot of this uh, much more in much more detail in future episodes. Yeah. It's something that like we're still unpeeling this onion a little bit. Like all of this stuff is so new for us that we're trying to get those insights of like being able to even share it so that people understand what the real problem is and what the challenges are behind the data so that we can develop the programming to fit for it. Yeah. And a good reminder, right, that although we may feel like we know so little about certain things, this situation with data Think about where we were 10 years ago. I mean, we didn't even know how many shelters there were in the country. Yeah. like the, I mean, the idea that we didn't have all the shelter data four years ago, and now we have the shelter data that we're now able to overlay some of these things like social vulnerability on top of, so we can start finding these correlations. And I think this connection between people in need and, and animals in need is just going to be, continue to be an important part of the conversation as we move forward. Of course, as more data is collected, our understanding of the needs will change. The data set for 2020's numbers will be out in June. And a reminder that if your shelter, rescue, spay-neuter organization, if you're not submitting your data and you're not a Best Friends Network partner, let's change that. Go to bestfriends.org slash network partners. That's plural. So again, bestfriends.org slash network partners and join us because every partner and every bit of data helps us all save more lives. Now let's shift to the Oklahoma Humane Society and hear from their president and CEO, Dana McCrory, about how they're growing their life-saving efforts beyond the city limits. The Oklahoma Humane Society was founded in 2007 to service and meet the needs of the community in Oklahoma City. So Oklahoma City is a rural city. It's over 660 uh, square miles, just the city alone. So you can imagine the core of the city, the downtown, and then you the suburban sprawl, and then keep moving out. And at some of Oklahoma City is pasture land. So Oklahoma City, we were founded to serve Oklahoma City. When we were founded in 2007, Oklahoma City had 20,000 dogs and cats coming into their shelter each year. 75% of those were euthanized. So 25% left the building alive. This year, we in 2020, the save rate was 89%. So we've gone from a 25% save rate to a 89% save rate. So we're right on the cusp of success of a no-kill city. Dana, I have to be honest and tell you that I know very little about Oklahoma City. Uh, I, 
How big is it? We have moved to a statewide project now, so all of Oklahoma, but Oklahoma City proper is about uh, $2 million. And so you do not have the contract for sheltering operations? No. So we are a, we're an anomaly. Um, we actually are a foster-based agency. We are partners with the city of Oklahoma City, and we are the only nonprofit that has a operating MOU. So we have a memorandum of understanding with the city of Oklahoma City that 70% of the animals that go through our programs will come from the Oklahoma City Animal Shelter. And that has what that's been what has changed the the game in Oklahoma City. Okay, so you have this MOU. What about the rest of the the rescue community landscape? Um, and for example, how many organizations are actively involved in saving lives in the city? The city of Oklahoma City Animal Shelter and Animal Welfare Division has over 100 rescue partners. Um, but Oklahoma Humane Society is the only one operating under a uh, memorandum of understanding. So those 16,000 animals that come in, um, over 100 partners are helping pull those animals and take them into programs. And the programs are diverse, as you can imagine. Okay, let's run through some numbers and some program stuff. You know, how about intake in the community? And, you know, what are you working on? For the, our, in, our pulling from the Oklahoma, I'm just going to kind of be very broad with, so we're going to say Oklahoma City Animal Welfare and OK Humane. Those two are the entities that we're going to talk about with numbers. We have over 3,500 adoptions each year through Oklahoma uh, Humane Society. We have about 2,000 relocations for uh, which transport out of state for OK Humane that are coming from the Oklahoma City Animal Welfare. We uh, manage the community cat program for the city of Oklahoma City, um, and that is about 1,500 to 2,000 TNRs, or you know, and then um, we provide low-cost spay neuter to over 15,000 pets each year. And again, just to ask, you do not have a facility. And you do not take animals from the public. And we do not have a facility as such. We have a spay-neuter clinic. We have a small adoption facility. The animals cannot stay overnight. Um, our foster program is uh, robust. And the, the 3,500 animal number of adoptions, all of those have been through our foster program each year. That's crazy. It's crazy. I guess the easiest way to say it is, okay, Humane is taking almost half of the animals that are placed in the Oklahoma City Animal Shelter. And we're diverting that to a program of some sort. So I will absolutely blame my own ignorance here with this, but I do know very little about your community and organization, but I just, the more I hear, the more I'm blown away. And I'm just so glad to have the opportunity to talk with you and share your work because you really do. I mean, you've got such a good thing going. We do. And if you um, really watch the trends, Oklahoma City is a city on the rise um, that we the NBA basketball team kind of put us on the map, um, but our cost of living is very reasonable. And so now we have everything it takes to be a top tier city. Um, and we have the uh, amazing just the hometown values. Those have not left. Um, what we didn't have was a city that understood that to be a top tier city, we had to address animal welfare. And so that movement has come along as well. Um, what we at Oklahoma uh, Humane Society have tried to do is to match that pace and, and change the animal welfare 
to be a top tier city. Um, we are emulating Austin. There are much worse cities to try to emulate. I know that much. Uh, so cool. So can you share more about the organization? Because as we shift into the conversation about your work statewide, I think it will help people maybe to understand how the who can lead the why, if that makes sense. I know, okay, it doesn't make, doesn't make any sense. Okay, so like your principles, the driving force, that is a big reason, I think, as to why you're, you're doing these kind of things. The Oklahoma Humane Society has a little bit of a different viewpoint in animal welfare. And I, I credit that to a team that we're bringing in that are not brought up in animal welfare. My core team, my intrinsic team that are implementing programs are transformational, strategy-driven people. And we talk about that. People save animals. We don't save them. Donors don't save them. The people of the city and of the rural and of the urban community save animals and they want to. And all we do is provide a framework and a structure in which to help them. There is zero bias. We operate in all four corners of Oklahoma City. We look at hot zones. We have key resource centers floating out everywhere from domestic violence centers to, um, you know, the very outskirts of Oklahoma City, which is 100% rural. We'd be more likely to get a pig than a dog or cat, which we have partners to take the pig because we don't, we only service dogs and cats. So our philosophy is that people save animals. And then we ask the people, what do they need? And they answer resoundingly um, for Oklahoma City, and that's a large area. It is population control, and it is low-cost medical. Those two things are key. You can go next door and find a dog. Honestly, we are not strapped for animals. Um, you could call your friend that has a farmer friend that has a collie that just birthed, you know, that is not the problem. We need to stop the root of the problem and that is overpopulation. And so we do. All right, let's leave the city. What's happening in rural Oklahoma? What is it like there? What's the animal situation? Uh, and can you maybe talk about your statewide effort? Our rural communities in Oklahoma are shrinking um, the towns are shrinking, the schools are drying up, the taxes are beginning to dry up as people um, move to the city where, where the jobs are, uh, just like the rest of the United States. There are some communities that are black holes as far as knowing what's happening with the animals. So the Oklahoma Humane Society, we're moving into those areas. So in the last um, six months, we have created two rural key resource centers those key resource centers are transport hubs to take animals that are overpopulated in those areas to out-of-state um, adopters and shelters, and then spay, neuter, and wellness. Everywhere we have gone, we have been opened with, we have been welcomed with open arms. It's not the city people coming in. Um, we are hiring the community members to stay there, or we're acquiring a small rescue that's doing great work, but just needs a little bit more structure, or they need a few more um, items that could help them transport more animals. What we're finding is that people want to do the right thing. People want to keep their animals and they want to take care of a spay neuter, but they may not be able to afford it. And that is 
more prevalent in the rural areas than what we're seeing in our um, cities. One thing in particular there I want to make sure people hear, which is that you're partnering with existing organizations, acquiring them, I think is what you said. And I just, I love that idea because you're not just steamrolling in. It is a true, like it's a partnership-based approach. Yes, and looking at where there is a, a need as well as a resource already in place. For example, the Oklahoma Humane Society on uh, January 1st acquired the um, Benita facility, and they were called the Peaceful Animal Adoption Shelter. Well, there's not very many adoptions that happen in rural Oklahoma because you can find you can find an animal. So they became a transport hub about four or five years ago. Um, they do a beautiful job transporting, and they transport from Oklahoma to Colorado, one facility. There, there's no other partners that they're dealing with right there. And then um, we help them set up a two-day-a-week spay-neuter clinic, either low-cost, no-cost, and then we begin helping with the partnerships everywhere from HSUS to um, the tribal nations. Um, and we are now putting together a seven county plan to address spay neuter in rural Oklahoma. And that's going to mean five day a week moving targets in different communities. The model that HSUS has done beautifully with Pets for Life, we're continuing that model um, once Pets for Life has gone into the community and began to um, make a difference and set up some structure. The sustainability key is the largest factor in success. It can't be want a Pets for Life for one year. It's Pets for Life for the community forever. So we're taking the forever part. Um, and um, everyone who works in our Vanita um, OK Humane campus is from the, that area. We are only providing a structure um, and a funding stream and the accounting services, the donor uh, base that they may need for their sustainable future. But we're also helping supply vets Think about the need for shelter veterinarians. You know how great that is. Well, Oklahoma Humane is not a shelter, but that shelter veterinarian um, mindset or that spay neuter mindset is what where we are bringing in vets that will go to these communities and spend months, years putting together the program and then recruiting in from our universities, the vets that are going to take those programs over. The veterinarians in the area welcome us because we have vet deserts. We have entire areas in, in Oklahoma that have no vets. People drive for our veterinarian services for 100 miles to a spay-neuter clinic. So um, we're just looking at where is there a need, where is there support, where, both in the community and in a shelter that, or a rescue that's already operating at a pretty high level, and then we're broadening the, uh, the circles. From a cultural perspective, if we're talking about being successful, keeping the relationships, people from that community helping others in the community, a community helping itself, I don't think we can underestimate how important that can be. So it's not, here comes, you know, quote unquote, outsider, uh, you know, some John Dunn-esque hipster with my man bun leftist politics. 
Uh, and, you know, the trepidation, probably warranted, uh, that might come from one of the community members uh, to working with that John Dunn-esque person. Uh, can I be as effective? Maybe. I could probably be pretty effective. Even if I could, it still, it almost feels wrong. And I'm not sure if this is the right word, uh, but almost like ethically wrong it, to just come in and take over and not hire people who are already there. I am not the one knocking on the door. And neither would you. No matter what, what your background is, if you are not a part of that community, you are not a part of outreach. And that's it. Everyone in the community that is working for Oklahoma Humane is already a part of Oklahoma Humane and part of that community. Our rural campuses for Oklahoma Humane are built in the community with the community. And the only time that I'm there is once a week to make sure the grants uh, reports are, are completed, that then we do our numbers correctly, that we've got the finances we need, um, talk to the mayors or talk to the Lions Club, always with um, our community member. So we have not hired a single person from outside of the community to run the community programs. Not one. We all have our groups of people that we can influence, that we listen to, that can be we can be influenced by. And if you take that mindset, again, that people save animals, you have to put the people that are in, the, in that group that understand that community need. Um, and I can't, I can't understand it. I, re, I grew up in a small town. Um, we lived on a family fun farm, basically. You know, we had all of the livestock, but we didn't, we didn't butcher. You know, they were, <laughs> they were our pets as much as they were our animals. I know that I could not go into the tribal nations and say, this is the way to do it. What I, and what OK Humane has done is ask the tribal nations, what do you want to do and how would you do it? And the tribal nation is running their own program, exactly what they should do. And we're a resource for them. We can provide the medical side of that, of a veterinarian that's not going to speak to a single tribal member that day as they spay and neuter, but the tribal members that are part of the team are working and, and helping them understand and walk through, um, you know, their cultures and their beliefs that are not intrinsic to, uh, to me. It's all about people. It's really hard for animal welfare people to understand that, but people save animals. And so if you get the core group of people in each area that has a passion, then they're not afraid to knock on that door. Um, they already know them because they've met them at the diner 17 times and they have, you know, they've bonded over a dog or, you know, so it is not on OK Humane to decide what that community needs. The community reaches out and says, we need help. And we come in and say, how, what, and who. And the who is always the community. So what has surprised you as you're now, you're going through this and, and you're seeing the things you're learning? Maybe what are the things you're encountering that maybe you just didn't foresee? I think something that surprised the Oklahoma Humane Society and the board of directors is 
we looked at the problem as a city problem and we began to address that. So we're very young. We're only 14 years old. So we looked at a problem and then began addressing that problem. And that's the exact model that we've taken out into the communities. So I don't believe you can do it all. I don't believe that one organization can be the turnkey organization and take care of every need available. Our partners with our other rescues are vitally important. The territorial part of animal welfare blew me away. I couldn't believe we weren't all working for the same reason. And so that has been a big olive branch how do we help the other smaller rescues that are doing a phenomenal job and that we can't do? We are not a strong behavioral rescue. We don't have behaviorists on staff. A behavior dog is really hard on us. It's hard on our resources. It's hard on our people. Who does that better? And how can we partner with them? And how can we help them? And I think the key in that is how can we help? So going into someone saying, how can I help? Guess what the number one thing is? They need funding. They need some type of funding. Oklahoma has this Oklahoma standard, and you hear it a lot now. You hear Boston strong, Atlanta strong, Oklahoma strong. Well, we're a bricks and sticks kind of people. The tornadoes have run through our state, and we figured out how to help. And so that's kind of the whole mentality that I want animal welfare to move into is how can we help get to the same end result? Um, and we just, we try to embrace, not to say there's not some territorial issues because funding is limited. We're all going to be applying for the same dollars from the same entities. Um, but if I could include a small rescue that handles extreme medical in our program and offer our services for the spay neuter of that animal, the services for that amputation of that animal, and they can provide the um, rehabilitation and the fostering of that animal. And then that animal comes back to OK Humane for adoption. That's a win. And so that territorial nature of animal welfare has got to lessen. We are all in it together. And it's incredibly difficult to get other organizations to believe that we we want to help without um, telling them how to do it. So listening is key as well. Um, we have a long way to go. We're doing great things, but we have a long way to go. Um, I spend a lot of time looking at the sustainability of the programs. How long will this program need to be in existence to meet the immediate need? And then how do we... Um, provide maintenance for that need for years to come um, because we can't change where we are or what we're doing, but we can change the outcome. So what's ahead for you? I'm interested to know the why. I mean, you don't have to be doing this. What you're doing isn't the norm. It's not like by doing this, you're just catching up or something. I think, you know, you could sit back and be a very effective nonprofit, right? You could um, raise money effectively. You could continue to grow your programs in the city. And I don't think anyone would question why you're not doing more, you know, going beyond the city limits. I, if I could show you two infographics, and I probably will send them to you just so you can see it. 
This is the trajectory of Oklahoma Humane Society from nothing to the largest animal welfare organization in the state. And then um, the other uh, infographic I would show you is here's the Oklahoma Humane Society and here's what is happening. So what I wanna do is move this um, Oklahoma Humane Society to the middle. And here's what's happening around the Oklahoma Humane Society in the state, you know, our little panhandle. So uh, that's the mentality is, is here we are in the middle and we are, we're smack dab in the middle of the state. It's almost like a, we're the crossroads in every, in for drug trafficking, for, <laughs> for the highways, for the mix masters, we're the crossroads, Oklahoma city. So we owe a responsibility to our surrounding communities that have supported the industry, the oil and gas, um, the hospital, the healthcare network. We are the hub. So why can't we be the transformational hub in animal welfare? And that's what we're striving for. We're going to be the transformational agent in animal welfare. And the only way we can do that is through partnerships across the state with rescues, with communities, with employees of OK Humane, beating uh, the trails every single day to get to that next community that needs help with the spay-neuter problem. That's Dana McCrory, president and CEO of the Oklahoma Humane Society. I talked to Dana for a lot longer than that, and she talked in detail about their amazing programs, such as the program Helping Victims of Domestic Violence. I wish I could put all of it in, but the episode would be way too long. So uh, you can learn more about them. Links up on our website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. So Dana mentioned Paws Venita. They partnered with them and actually acquired that organization. Rhonda Norris is the director there, and we chatted because I wanted to learn more about what they do in their rural community in Oklahoma and to try to understand why they made the decision to join the Oklahoma Humane Society. So Rhonda, after I talked to Dana and she told me about you, uh, your organization and the partnership, I'm excited to talk to you because I think it's super neat and I'm excited to get the perspective of an organization like yours that was on the other side of a partnership like this. You're in a very rural area. So I want to know the why. Uh, and of course, I want to know about you and uh, PAWS. Sounds good. Do you know much about PAWS? To be honest, other than looking at your website and talking to Dana, I don't know much more than that. So uh, I came on with PAWS uh, in 2015 um, when the building was still brand new or we hadn't even moved into it yet. It's a million and a $1.7 million building. It's absolutely beautiful. It was an adoption center um, in very rural Oklahoma. We're in Northeast Oklahoma. And of course, our first few weeks, uh, we did so much intake that we were full. Um, and the vision here was for this to be a, an adoption facility, but that was not the case. Um, we couldn't adopt anything out of here. This is a very rural, very poor community. Um, not a lot of growth, none actually. And so we had to find other ways to move the animals out of this um, facility. They were, our average length of stay here was three to six months. Um, yeah, so it was pretty tough. It was tough on the team. It was tough on, uh, tough on the animals for sure. Um, so we started programs like relocation. We have great partners in Denver, um, uh, the Dumb Friends League, which has taken over 6,000 dogs out of the community and uh, homeless dogs, that is. Um, and to place those dogs up in Colorado. 
So that program was real successful. Uh, it got it did so well that um, we started lowering numbers of uh, dog, you know, homeless dogs on the streets here and and in our, our local town. Um, but it was a band aid. Uh, it was a band aid for everything. So then we started a partnership with. Um, the Humane Society of the United States for a Pets for Life program, which was a community outreach program uh, for underserved communities. And that program was such a success that it uh, ended, I won't say ended, but it really impacted this community, particularly here in Benita. We have very few uh, owner surrenders now. And that's because we're offering ways for people to keep their pets and they don't have to, they don't have to give their pets up because they can't afford vaccinations for them or because they can't afford to get them out of the pound. Um, we've provided those services for them. Um, and that was a really a pivotal point for PAWS um, in, in really serving this community. Uh, we don't have, I want to say that our animal control maybe has an intake of 100 per year, which is crazy good. Uh, and then all of those animals that are homeless uh, go in our transport programs and the ones that aren't, we try to get them back in their homes with their families. Um, so that's, that's where that pause has evolved to. We do not house animals in our shelter anymore. Uh, we've become a transport uh, hub, if you will, for um, a lot of probably about 15 other organizations across the state and in Arkansas to move their dogs that are at risk for euthanasia. Um, and so we have dogs that come in here once a week, uh, and they leave that night for transport. So there's no overnight stay here at PAWS. Um, and so that's what we're doing now. And then we've expanded with a very low cost spay neuter program and, uh, uh, wellness clinics and vaccine clinics for our community, for those folks who can't afford, um, you know, premium care, I guess you'd say, or whatever. I think it's all premium because we use the best vets <laughs> and they do um, donate a lot of their time, but um, we don't base anything on income. We don't um, judge at all under any circumstances. So I want to be sure I have this straight. A $1.7 million facility. Uh, as I said, I looked at your website and I can't say at least from the photos, it is a very, very beautiful space. So the facility is built, the organization is named Adoption Shelter, and then there's this realization that adoption isn't a viable life-saving solution in Vanita? That's exactly what happened. And, and you know, the, the people and our donors who, you know, kind of founded it and stuff, uh, they had a vision and... They wanted this to be, we were gonna, their, their vision was to, do, or to adopt out thousands of animals, you know, every year. And it, it just wasn't gonna happen. Our population here in Benita is about 5,500. And we're in, you know, we're in just such a, a rural area. And this is in its, uh, you know, it's a, the area has got a lot of poverty and stuff. And uh, this facility would have been great in some place like Tulsa or, you know, someplace where there's more people. But adopting animals was not going to work here. But we changed it around and, and the way that, um, you know, we've impacted the community and 
the animal control, you know, animal control here and, and also um, in Tahlequah, which we're also working our pets for life in another community in Cherokee Nation. Those communities as well um, have not had euthanasia of adoptable animals since the Pets for Life program went in. As I said, I'm really keen to understand more about the partnership you have with the Oklahoma Humane Society. So maybe the first question, be honest with me, uh, how's it going? So actually our partnership is brand new and um, it was a merger acquisition that happened in uh, the 1st of January. So it's, it was very, it was very, very new. Uh, it is very new. So they have, they have just came in um, to support the programs that we have, not change anything and just expand these programs. Um, and that's kind of where we're at now. It's, like I said, it's all so new. Um, it came about in October and it happened in, in you know, the 1st of January. So it's pretty quick, but it's a great partnership. I feel like good things are going to happen. And they're already talking about us expanding our programs. And we actually are OK Humane pause Benita. So we'll we will be we will be using that name as well. It's this sort of a leading question, I suppose, uh, since I think I already know the answer, which is why do this? Obviously effectiveness, more resources. Uh, I think there are really a lot of obvious advantages to it, but that doesn't really answer the why. A lot of organizations have been in your position and actually might have said, no, we don't want to partner with this other bigger organization. So why do this? And that, and uh, that I couldn't, I really can't tell you the details on that because I don't really know myself um, that a lot of that was done with our, uh, our donors and our board and stuff. So um, they, okay, humane acquired pause and our board here dissolved. So we are now okay, humane. And we're just their Vanita campus now. It, I think that it's going to be great. Um, a lot of it is, um, you know, the shelter needed, you know, we needed to do move into that direction. It's sustainability, you know, over the next five years and where we're planning on going. So uh, it was really good. And I think that was our donors just looking out for the best interests of, of this organization and putting, you know, put it, making a merger with a bigger organization that, is wanting that footprint in different areas so that we can, you know, make impact. You know, they they like pause um, because of the impact that we have made. You know, I don't think that they made that decision lightly. You know, because our programs are successful, we have made impact, and we're working a rather large area of Northeast Oklahoma. So here you have this organization by any measure against any community. Uh, you got this huge investment to start. But with a bit of a misfire on what role the organization should be playing in the community to serve the community, and uh, now to where you are today, what did it take to get to this point? Yeah, we when we started the partnership with uh, with the Humane Society of the United States for the Pets for Life program, they identified areas of need, and so what happens is these people that are in these very very low income or impoverished areas, they're not going to come to us for help. So we engage them. It was through community outreach or a proactive outreach. And we found areas or identified uh, demographic areas of systemic poverty. And we loaded up a van full of supplies and we knocked on doors. And you're not met with, uh, you know, smiling faces at first. There's a lot of suspicion. 
there's a lot of who are you? What are you doing here? Why are you knocking on my door? Um, and then it's a handshake and talk about pets is always an icebreaker. And so that's what we did. We knocked on every door in Benita, every door. And we don't, if one area is, looks nicer than the other, we don't judge that. We just knock on that door too, you know, and, and do you need services? And then we become a resource for the community. It's like, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid to go to your vet because your pet doesn't have hair and it looks thin and underweight, you know, and that's what happens to these folks is they try all these home remedies or they try to fix things themselves because they cannot afford to go to the veterinarian. And then it gets out of control. And um, then they're, they're afraid to go because they're judged when they get there uh, based on what their animal looks like. So we don't do that. We intervene if there's um, animal controls involved or it looks like cruelty. We'll go and say if it looks like cruelty or has this person been trying to help this pet? And 99.9% of the time, that's what it is. So that's how we engage the community. Then once we do that, then, then they start to see us as a resource and animal control too. We're trying to change the way animal control looks to some people, um, you know, as they're there to take their dogs or, you know, they're not, they're not good people. And so now both communities, both Tahlequah and Vanita see their animal control officer as a resource because they know that they work very close with us. And that animal control officer is going to keep that pet in the home rather than put it in her shelter. For people who may not be familiar with Oklahoma geography, Vanita, where you are, where the facility is, where you're based, is in the very top, basically like northeast corner of Oklahoma. And, you know, I noticed on the map that you're close to Cherokee Nation, the reservation. Do you also work with that community? Oh, yes. Yes. And we just um, just recently signed a contract with Cherokee Nation. We're going to provide um, or they're going to provide 250 vaccines, rabies vaccines to, and they're not, it doesn't have to be Cherokee or a tribal member, but to in, in five counties, which are Cherokee nation counties. So they're going to provide that. We're going to set up these events and then hopefully get donations for um, other, other services like DHPP vaccines and deworming and some educational materials and things like that. That's where we're just started with Cherokee nation. And I'm hoping that, that uh, at some point that they'll, sponsor something as far as our spay neuter goes, um, you know, to serve those areas too. And I think they will. I always want to make sure we're having people share their knowledge on this podcast. That's what it's all about. So as we talk about how people can get out into different areas and grow their impact, what advice do you have to help people understand how they can be effective in this way? Um, first, you need to know those areas of need, those um, particular areas. And you have to have the right person to do that. You have to have, and it's very hard to be non-judgmental or to think that there's something more going on with the pet than what really is, but you have to walk in and keep your mouth shut and let them talk. You have to listen to what their needs are because they'll tell you and just listen to what they have to say. And then you can provide them with what, you know, what you can or, you know, let them know what they can do. But it's, it's really having the right person to go into those communities that can listen and be very non-judgmental and, and find resources for them. If they're fixing to be evicted, you know, because of they can't provide vaccines or they can't pay a pet deposit. Well, find ways to help them do that. Go talk to a landlord, go talk to do what you got to do. And which is what we do all the time. 
we've saved a lot of people from a lot of stuff out here, <laughs> different things, but just by having conversations, having conversations, you know, uh, like animal control, I'll give you an example. This was several years ago, a couple years ago. Uh, we had animal control pick up two dogs that were our pets for life clients dogs. And she took pictures of them and the way she took pictures of them, they looked malnourished and things like that. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Bring those dogs to me first. And so when they got there, they were underweight, but not malnourished. They had the my client up on about 10 charges of animal cruelty. It just, you know, it was like, no, this, this is not what this is. And so I, you know, it was, I, it was a matter of sitting down and writing letters to the city attorneys and, and retaking photographs and finding out why these animals were uh, slightly underweight and their pins were dirty. Well, their owner had been in the hospital with um, pneumonia for a week. So, but she didn't bother to ask those questions. Instead of taking him, you know, he didn't have $1,500 to get out of jail with, and they had taken him to jail that he didn't have the $1,500. But anyway, we got them all dropped. That's just what it is. It's just a matter of listening to people and getting out there and engaging people and becoming a resource. You know, your shelters and, and whatever need to become a resource rather than a place for people to take and drop their pets. I know it might be hard to just choose one, but I always love to hear stories. So is there one that sticks out to you that, you know, maybe tells the story really well of the work you do at PAWS? There's a Angela's story was um, tore everybody's hearts out, but she had, was relinquishing her pets. She called Paws to uh, surrender her pets and, and uh, she had brought them up here. And when she came, she was just sobbing and just crying. And I was like, why are you giving your pets up? And you know, if you're this upset about it. I've had Zoe since she was a baby and then she had Queenie and the kids just clicked with her. It was sad when we moved to town and had no way to keep her, get her fixed, keep her in the pen or anything like that. Someone told me about Paws where I could take her and that they would make sure she went to a good home. And then when I took her um, is when they told me that I didn't actually have to get rid of her, that they would be able to help me with the pen and get her fixed and everything. And would I be able to keep her if they helped? The kids had been crying because they weren't expecting me to come back with Queenie. And so when I pulled up and opened the door and let her loose, it was just, it was awesome because all the kids were so excited. Queenie was excited. She may not have a fancy home, but she has lots of love and she does get fed and taken care of. Uh, and she's still in the community and she's still advocates for that program. So that one really, really tugged at us. That one was a, was a really, really, really good one. We put up the full version of that video of the Pets for Life work happening in Venita, Oklahoma. It's up on the podcast website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Again, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Now, I know many of you listening are either yourself in a rural area or you are with an organization that is doing outreach into those areas. We want to hear about your work. So send us an email, podcast at bestfriends.org. The producers, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.